I think these lessons today have been excellent, and I truly have appreciated them myself. As you might imagine, um, we stepped on each other's toes with scriptures because you can't deal with this topic if, if you don't end up using some of the same scriptures. I'm going to approach this a little bit differently. You know, when people ask about issues that are facing the church, okay, um, what I was going to do was draw a big circle on the floor here. Where's the sergeant arms? I want that woman removed. <laughs> this is bad because, you know, it's going to be on the church's website and no one's going to have a clue who was harassing me. You all fill them in, okay? Anyway, um, and I was going to put chairs around and I was going to have some of the kids come up here and sit there so that they, they could be in the circle and be the flock of God. That would have been the church right over here, Okay. And then everybody outside that circle, including those of you who were not willing to come sit in the chairs, would be the world. All right. And our basic concept of uh, what the church faces would be topics like the one I did at the congregation on the debate between evolution and creation, the concept of atheism, just naturalism in general, the idea that, you know, the world created itself, you know, itself creating, self-sustaining, that idea. Uh, the whole idea of various errors uh, that we, we know that some of our friends have with reference to Scripture, they don't know that they do because they don't even know where, they don't know where the button got wrong on the vest. You know, if you get off on the first button, it is not going to come out right up here. So they, they don't even know how that actually happened. And I have a lot of sympathy for that since I came out of a major denomination. And uh, basically, I don't even know what I'd call myself except an agnostic, but I kind of gave up church and stuff in college. You know, I kind of shifted over to another one of my passions, which was fraternity stuff. We'll leave it at stuff. Okay. So anyway, we have the problem of suffering and pain. Most of us have had to deal with that at some point just general indifference about spirituality. You know, and I think the way that we do tend to, to view that is we are here and those people don't care. You know, now the intellectuals at Athens thought that Paul was a fool. They said he was a babbler. But on the other hand, as it was pointed out, there were a few people out of the intellectuals who went with him. So there were people who saw his point that there must be one God. There can't be all of these gods. And the idea of, you know, let me talk to you about the one true God, you know, who is above all and over all, that got to them. You know, and um, you're not going to get as much success talking in those intellectual circles you know, I do not consider myself an intellectual by any means. I know what intellectuals are like, and I'm trying my very best not to do that, because intellectuals have sort of a, uh, an aloof quality to them, the true intellectuals. So anybody who doesn't have the same background and training that they have, they, they really don't take them seriously. I've, had, I've heard people say before, well, you're not a biologist, to somebody else, to a student, you're not a biologist, you don't know what you're asking about even. You know, that's a really sad kind of approach to people. Uh, and I think that some of the people who hide in colleges are there because it's a safe place for them to believe whatever they want to believe. You know, it's kind of an open lifestyle kind of thing. And I understand that. But we kind of hang out at church in the circle for the same reason. We, we're comfortable over here, you know. And, and that is a bit of a problem that I think we have not addressed completely uh, this morning, this afternoon, well, today. All right, so uh, what are issues then? If those, if those are the kinds of issues, the ones that we've talked about, 
on hermeneutics and eschatological issues, if those are real issues, aren't they coming in sort of from the outside? Satan roving around, you know, like a roaring lion, and he's trying to knock on the door, and he's trying to come in and devour us. Is that not sort of the idea that many people have? So I was going to have you be the roaring lion and somebody else be, you know, atheism and so on. Uh, And then I decided since it was a wood floor that perhaps drawing a circle on the floor, even with a dry erase marker, might not be good. Okay. So uh, what I was going to have them do is to come out of the church and go back into the world. And the ones that were left over here would be in the world. And then they were going to have to go and sit amongst you. Christians have to get out of the salt shaker and into the world. If we're the salt of the earth, we cannot sit in the salt shaker all the time. Now, part of the problem that we run into is is really this idea of what does it mean to go out into the world? Well, it means we're going to leave this room. You may go to the gift shop and you're going to be in the world and you're going to have people to talk to. So the same, you know, these same things face individuals, but there's no single passage. You can't go to the book that talks about atheists. There's plenty of scriptures, we recognize that, but the Bible isn't written topically. We have to search all over the place to find these scriptures. That puts a burden on those of us who are studying the scriptures. And um, it's really easy to go to topical studies on a lot of these issues without recognizing the context of some of the scriptures that we're using as opposed to just going to a passage and seeing what that passage says. Now, surprisingly to you, I suspect, is that I've never done my, any of my creation and evolution stuff in my own congregation, not in 25 years, because nobody's had a problem with it. They're all Christians. They all believe that God created. It's just not an issue with us. Where it is an issue, where people ask for help, I go. I don't mind doing that. I mean, I have a different background than everybody else because my doctorate is in biology. And I've taught, 12, I taught 12,000 students while I was at Eastern during that 19 and a half years. They were all non-majors. They didn't want to be in the class. But part of that is, is I considered a ministry. Somebody asked me to come to some small religious school that had about 600 students at the time and said, you need to be down here. You need to do this. You need to do that. And I said, well, um, looks like God's blessed us here, and I have a ministry. And they did not see that I had a ministry at the university because I wasn't teaching Christians. And to me, the whole concept of going into the world is is to go out there and figure out how we can show the light of Christ through our own lives. All right, You you may not get somebody with an argument where they feel that you're preaching to them and pointing at them and pounding on the table and using the Bible as the scriptures as a club rather than watching you in your life. So we're going to go out here. So what what might be one of the first things we could do? Well, basically, we can smile at everybody and say, hey, how you doing? It's free. It's the the one thing that doesn't really take any more of our time, and it doesn't take any money. You know, but if, if you are known as being a person who smiles at everybody and saying, how are you doing today? you'll find out that people will want to talk to you. They just do. You know, it's like, oh, here's somebody who cares. And you have to lay this down in layers. You have to start with the obvious. But when I was, uh, when I was teaching at Eastern, and I, I don't like using myself in any way as an example, but my experience was that because I dealt with students as an equal, all of us students, I'm a student, you're a student, we're all ignorant just about different things. That's a quote from Einstein you might want to go look up. 
we're all ignorant, we're just ignorant about different things. And I would tell them, I guarantee you that I will learn two or three things from you during my classes this semester that I never knew, and I was never wrong. If it wasn't two or three, it was ten. And the relationship that I developed with my students, because I smiled, I teased around, I tried to treat them as equals, just they're students at one level, I'm a student at a different level. None of us have all of the truth. We don't know everything. Then my students became very, they felt very at ease with me to the point of, you know, trashing my jokes from the seat. Yeah, that just, I, th I was so proud the day that that girl, who was pretty much where you're sitting, uh, down course I had the stage that made me look taller which I desperately need in fact I was going to talk to you about how high this podium is <laughs> anyway uh, you know I, I, I was teasing around about the joke I had just said and I said oh I didn't get much out of that over your head and she goes Dr. Dave it's because your jokes aren't any good and you could hear a collective <coughs> in the classroom there were a hundred students in there well, you know, that did not bother me. So I want to tell you there's two things that I started to preach, well, speak on, okay, from the scriptures. And I can touch on it various places. The two things that I think are the most dangerous in the church are fear among Christians and pride. There's not a single problem that you see within the church that you cannot trace back to either pride, a feeling that we are better than somebody else, that's been spoken about, you know, or, you know, just the pride of, I can't, I can't let them win, me, win in that argument. By golly, I'm going to whoop them. Which, by the way, I heard uh, a very old man who had been a Christian all his life and then was an elder say, man, I whipped that Baptist guy in that argument. Now, if that bothers you, then you know, you know what I'm trying to say right now. We cannot have that attitude. This is not a competition. That was the whole point that was being made earlier. It is not a competition. Uh, if I can look through the outside and all of the things that a person appears to represent of the world and look straight through to their soul, then I can view everybody equally. When I view everybody equally, I realize that every one of those people who appears to be rebellious is rebellious for some reason. And what you want to do is try to see through to the soul that you know is there because God put it there. The one that can serve God if you can get them past whatever it is has, they feel like has trashed them in this life. And some will, not, some will never respond to that. No matter how much you show love to them, they will never change, even if you have the opportunity to say, well, you know, you're angry and bitter all the time. Why do you think you don't have friends? Now, there is a way to say that, whoops, sorry. There is a way to say that and be kind about it. But at some point, they're either going to listen to you and consider that they may need to change something about their life. And I'll finish with that whole idea because we... We have this kind of concept in our minds that we really can't do anything about what we are. This is just me. I'm genetic. You know, I have a temper because I'm Italian heritage or I'm Irish heritage, probably more dangerous. But uh, anyway, the, I've got a temper and it's not my fault. It's just part of my makeup. Well, the, the point is we can change those things and there's a very specific passage that talks about not the only passage but one that is particularly good at least it was for me and I'll come back at the end okay so I, I wish I could, I could address the fear and pride but first of all that's Satan's greatest uh, greatest weapon first of all we are afraid of dying when you're afraid of dying, then you're afraid you're going to get killed. When you're afraid you're going to get killed, then you worry about the people you're going to talk to. All right? And the less you know about other people, well, you actually don't have to know about other people. 
you just treat them like you would treat your neighbor. Oh, they are your neighbor, aren't they? Well, we don't have to go through that lesson right now. But everybody is your neighbor. And so, you know, I've seen people who have kind of walked by on the other side of the street when they saw someone who kind of looked like a gangbanger walk down towards them. Chains everywhere, you know, all in leather. You know, de definitely making a statement to the world. I had that happen to me when, when the kids were little and Darlene and I had come from Cleveland. We were tired, it was night, hadn't eaten, and we stopped at that Frisch's that's just on this side of the river up in, uh, in Covington, next to the Round Hotel, <laughs> the Spire. Anyway, um, so we stopped and this, this biker guy came in. Huge guy, absolutely huge. Big old burly beard. He had, you know, he had stuff plugged into his leather all over the studs, all over him, and chains and stuff like that. So I've got the kids at the table with us, and he sits right there. And I was nervous. I just got to tell you, I was nervous. You know, I hadn't been around a lot of bikers, and this guy was imposing. Now, I, you, you need to understand that these hands are lethal weapons in the eyes of the government. But I, I, I would, thank you. <laughs> she knew I was a liar. Anyway, uh, the point is I actually was nervous and scared about this. Well, next thing I know, Heather starts talking to him. Now, she's like five. Heather just starts talking to him and he smiles. They warm up with one another, and next thing I know, Heather and Jonathan are talking with him, and he's talking with us, and everything was just fine. Nice guy. Now, at one point in my life, I would have crossed the road rather than to encounter that guy. And that's where we have to change it. We've got to get away from the fear that everybody in the world is out to get us, you know, and uh, having had a lot of Muslims in my classes at school, I am pretty sure that not all Muslims are as bloodthirsty as the ones that we've seen on TV. I'm not saying that I agree with the religious perspective, which is a little bit like the one that we read about this morning in the Old Testament about take the prophets of Baal and kill them. Because in the Old Testament, which is completely attached to uh, Muhammad's writings um, in the Quran, it was that, it's that same thing. It's like we are, all those people are barbarians and we need to take care of that. So you really can't get around the fact that that is intricately tied up in all of their religious views, all of their social views, all of their political views. However, they're not all that way. Just like the intellectuals at Athens were not all like the intellectuals I'm worried about. There were some who went with Paul. You know, so there will be some people who are gangbangers who will change their life and come to Christ. You know, there are people who are Muslims who will become Christians. There are people from every religion who will become Christians. The question is, what is the way to get to them? Is there a pattern in the Bible that we are supposed to follow? Well, I want you to see that. Uh, it just turned back over to Matthew 5. And uh, I didn't know about the PowerPoint here, but I don't preach with a PowerPoint. We don't have PowerPoint stuff in our congregation. I basically just do expository lessons out of the scriptures. And uh, in our congregation, everybody seems to be more comfortable with that. Not knocking it, because I use the PowerPoints to do my other lessons, which are more complex. So I want to stay in Chapter 5 with you for a minute. You know, some of you can turn your iPads over to Chapter 5 of Matthew. <laughs> How many people have seen someone who was offended because some Christian was using the iPad to get to their Bible? Nobody knew anybody? <laughs> I'll raise my hand for the 12 I knew. 
it just bothered them that the person wasn't using their Bible. Now, when I'm in Bible Gateway, and I'm not pushing any one, it just happens to be the one that I use, BibleGateway.com, every time you put up a scripture, all I had to do was to hit, like, James and, and I went to four, James 4 and 17, and I could just do it like that. And I was there faster than I could ever turn it in my Bible. So I want you to think about how change comes in. You know, if, if I thought someone was going to leave Christ, not leave the church, offense means to stumble and leave the Lord. Don't ever let that bother you. The whole idea of somebody being offended is the fact that they are going to give up on Christ. I don't know that I've ever caused anybody to do that. But they may have had very strong differences about what they thought was appropriate, you know, to maintain order, you know, and a peaceful nature in the congregation. So anyway, that's, that's kind of where I'm coming from, from my own background. And it took me a long time to get there, and I think that's a growth process. And I don't, I don't think that I've apprehended, I think was the word Paul used about his own, his own ministry. You know, I've, I've tried. I've tried to do what I think is best. That does not mean that I, my way is perfect or that I have gotten there yet. So I just try to keep remembering that while I was yet a sinner... Christ came and died for me. Romans 7, if I remember correctly. I mean, I actually knew that before you used it. You don't believe me, do you? <laughs> I shouldn't be teasing with Kyle because you all have no idea on this tape who I am talking about. All right, so anyway, uh, the, the thing that I'm saying is I was the gangbanger, gay, AIDS-infected person that God saved. I was just as bad. I was full of sin. There was no hope for me because I was not acknowledging God, the one and only true God or His Son, Jesus Christ. When I sang praises, I was singing it for the music I love to sing those songs, but some people sing it for the music. They don't sing it consciously looking to praise God. That's not the reason. And if somebody messes up or there's an alto over here who sings too loud or a soprano in the back whose voice is so piercing it goes right through your head, it bothers them when it should not bother them. And you know, you know where I'm going. I mean, it's not like there's anything new about the gospel. So, seeing the multitudes, Matthew 5, 1, he went up onto a mountain, not to escape, <laughs> just so you know. He went up on a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Happy are the poor in spirit. We use the word blessed, but it kind of takes us off the track there. It really means happy. All right, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How, how, must, how must that have been taken by someone who had lived a life of sin, was a prostitute, you know, was a thief? And I'm pretty sure that Jesus dealt with all of them in his small band of people who were around him, right? The people who appreciate salvation are the ones who need it the most. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and happy are they that mourn. That seems like an odd statement, doesn't it? For they shall be comforted. You know, I don't mind. It's kind of like uh, Troy was saying this morning. I don't, I don't think there's any problem with the difficulties that God allows us to have in our life if it draws us closer to him, if it draws us under his wing. Now, if we gripe and moan and kind of get mad at God because these things have happened to us, then the problem is ours. It's not God's. He's offered comfort. He's promised it. All we have to do is believe that it's actually there, and with God's timing, he'll take care of us. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. I'm pretty sure that the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't fall under meek. Okay? 
Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Well, I didn't think that any of those people were allowed to read the scriptures. I wasn't even sure whether any of those were allowed to come in the synagogue. The Gentiles certainly wouldn't. They could pray out there if they didn't mind the, you know, all the noise of the animals and the money changers and all. They could go out into the court of the Gentiles and pray. I'm not sure that you'd get much done, but they couldn't come in the temple. They were excluded because they weren't one of the Jews. They weren't one of us. And sometimes we have that same tendency. That James passage is so powerful because if you, if you have never had somebody come into a congregation where you were kind of waiting for them to get out, that their appearance or what you thought they were or what you thought the situation was made you uncomfortable and so you would have just as soon had them leave. You know, we don't want that kind here. How many people have actually heard something to that extent from a Christian? Liars. <laughs> How many of you are afraid to raise your hand? <laughs> oh, wait, I just defeated myself on that one. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, and blessed are those which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. And that doesn't sound like you might be filled. It keeps sounding like you will have this happen, you know. I am in control of all things. You know, I, a girl uh, who was working on my teeth the other day um, told me she was going to have to have her gallbladder out. She, she was not a girl girl. She was sort of a young woman girl. Well, sort of a middle-aged, young, kind of old, but not young. Do you know where I'm going with this? Anyway, she was working on my teeth, and she said, I asked her how things were going, and she said, well, so-so. Now, first of all, I have to ask myself why she said that to me. You know, was it because the dentist is my son-in-law? Was it because of the way we had interacted up to that point? I'd like to think that had something to do with it. And so she told me about that. And then I got serious. I didn't act stupid anymore. You know how I tease around so much. And I said, you, you will be fine. I'm confident of that. My mother had that. They had to cut her all open. And now they use the little vacuum cleaner. I said, I've had lots of people who've had this done you will feel a lot better. Your probability of feeling bad is pretty low. But I'll remember you in my prayers. And you need to remember the great physician now is near, the sympathizing Jesus. How many times do we sing that particular verse without thinking about what we are saying? Do you believe that Jesus is sympathetic to your particular situation? The problems that you have? Surely you do. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The mercy thing is similar to several other things that are mentioned. If you do not show mercy, don't expect mercy from God. I don't know how to say that any simpler. If you don't show love, you won't get love. If you don't show kindness and joy, you're not going to get it back. But when it comes to mercy, feeling alongside of somebody, that's what compassion means. When it comes to mercy, you will be happy if you are merciful because you know that you will obtain mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Now, when you have people fussing and fighting at church, and every time you get ready to go to church, you have this big knot in your stomach because you're not sure what's going to happen that day, there is a serious problem in the church with pride. Because pride is what leads to envy and strife and quarreling and anger. And backbiting, gossip, and a few other things that are clearly mentioned in the New Testament. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of God. And then he elaborates uh, in verse 11. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you. Well, wait a minute. That's supposed to be happy are ye when men shall revile you. Something odd about that statement. It doesn't seem to be logical, does it? 
and persecute you. Wait a minute. I'm supposed to be happy when they revile me and persecute me and say all manner of evil against me as liars? Do you really think I have to do that? You mean I should be happy? I'm happy today. Oh, yes, I'm happy. Well, the point is that you know that if that's happening because you represent Christ on this earth, that it will be better for you. It will be better for you. If, you, if they do it for my sake, if that's why you're suffering, for my sake. And he says, rejoice, be exceedingly glad, verse 12, for great is your reward in heaven, because they persecuted the prophets that were before you in the same way. I kind of paraphrased that. And then he says something really amazing. He says, here's the plan. If you can do that, then you are the salt of the earth. We are not the salt of the earth because we're in that circle. We are the salt of the earth because we understand what has just been said. We actually understand that we have got to, we have got to react differently to people who are, who are mean to us. We just have to. You know, we have to grow in our strength, in our, in our faith, to be able to get to the point where if somebody slaps us down, we just, we don't do anything. They want to hit the other cheek, that's fine. We don't like it. We're not masochists. It's just, we're Christians. Soft answer turns away wrath. I'm pretty sure I read that someplace. It works, guys. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt's lost its flavoring or savor, then wherewith shall it be salted? Thenceforth, it's good for nothing, just to be cast out, trodden under the foot of men. You have to understand that salt was always attached with rocks. It wasn't just salt, purified salt like we know it. So if the salt part of that was gone, you just had rocks. You had no way to get it back. So you're the salt of the earth, verse 14. You're the light of the world. Now, if you, what he's saying is, if you understand the Beatitudes, if you understand what I'm saying there, and you know how to be happy in a true sense, then you will be a light to the world, and a city that's set on a hill can't be hidden. So the real question is, am I a light to the world? Well, are you hidden? Do you smile? Do you do good? Do you approach people without worrying about it? I'm not saying we shouldn't be safe. I'm just saying you got to put your worries on the Lord. He said, don't be anxious about anything. Just don't. And don't means don't. And that's hard to get to that point. I'm not there yet. I've had people make me so mad. I wondered if I could just go on and hurt them in some way and justify it before the Lord. You know, when somebody steals $50,000 from you, it's tough. When you almost lose your house, your land, and everything, it's really tough. So there have been some really bad times in my life, even after I became a Christian, even after I was ministering. You're the light of the world. Oh, yeah. Doesn't that mean at home, too? Salt of the earth at home, light of the world. When Darlene reviles and persecutes me and says all manner of evil against me falsely. Now, that was an illustration, Darlene. I, I know you've never done that and would never do that. But my, my point is, if that were the situation, and some marriages have that kind of situation where one is at least verbally abusing the other if they're not physically abusing them. How do you react to it? Pick up the gun and shoot them? You're the light of the world, verse 14, a city that's set on a hill. You can't hide it. Neither do men hide a candle or light a candle and put it under a bushel basket. They put it on a candlestick. It gives light to all that are in the house. So let your light so shine before men 
that they can see your good works. So now we know what the light is. It's the smiling at them. It is the compassion. Somebody says, well, I don't know if that person's telling the truth about being in a problem. That's not your job. If somebody comes through your path, then maybe God allowed them to come through your path because they are the ones that really do need the help. And if they lie to you, you've done exactly what you were supposed to do, and they've lied. So you may be $20 down, and there's ways to get around it. You just carry around those uh, gift certificates from uh, various restaurants, you know, am hungry kind of thing on the side of the road. Just say, here's a $10 certificate to uh, Frisch's. Not a bad way to deal with it. You've done something, they may not use it for it. I know one. I, I, I know about this only because I went back to that same Cracker Barrel a second time. It's down in Louisville, and I don't normally go there because it's uh, way out in Crittenden Drive. But this guy came up to me outside the restaurant, and, and he says, I was wondering if you could give me some gas money. My buddy and I are, you know, we've run out of gas I said, well, where's your buddy? He says, well, he's still down there under that overpass. I said, well, I can't give you any gas money, but I'll be glad to pay for your dinner. So I went in, and I gave the money to the, enough money to cover two meals to the waitress. And uh, I left, because that was all I knew to do. At that particular point in time, that was all I could do. So I happened to go back, and that same waitress was there. And I asked her, I said, do you remember me? And she said, yeah, you're the one who gave me the money for those meals. And I said, did he use it? No, as soon as you walked out the door, he said, you know, I'll split this with you 50-50 if you'll give it to me. Did I do anything wrong? No, I didn't do anything wrong. I did exactly what I felt like I needed to do because I didn't know. And so I've got people around me who say, I just can't do that. But ultimately you can, and I'll get back to that passage. So he says, don't think that I have come to destroy the law. That's an interesting thing to put in right after the light of the world thing. Let your light so shine before men they can see your good works. Well, that's the light. And then they'll glorify your Father which is in heaven. They won't glorify you. I'm always concerned about... The, the people I'm most impressed by are the ones who give anonymously. And in the list of donors, it says anonymous, anonymous, anonymous. Because they're not looking for any glory for themselves. And he says, don't think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I haven't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. And that seems like an odd transition to me, right? Seems like a really odd transition. So he's coming back to this whole problem of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes being angry with him. And he says, Truly I say unto you, until heaven or earth pass, not one jot, not one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law until everything's fulfilled. So he makes a clear statement which they misunderstand. So did he do something wrong? I thought we called him the great teacher. How come they killed him? I mean, he either was a great teacher or he wasn't the greatest teacher. Well, the point is he told them the truth and he knew still they were going to kill him. He didn't have to tell them the truth. He knew they were going to kill him. If you're in that situation, would you allow yourself to be killed or would you just continue to tell them the truth? So he says, Whosoever shall break one of the least of these commandments and shall teach men to do it. He shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the idea of hypocrisy is here. If you're going to say that you're going to do it, you know, love you, man. A lot of people I see them, they say, love you guys. This is a, this is a very, uh, very popular Facebook reply. They like the statement and they say, love you guys. The question is whether they have actually prayed. 
whether they have actually cared, whether they actually follow up and say, how are things going in a message or something. Otherwise, it's empty words. Whoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Because I'm saying to you, verse 20, that except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm not sure how they would have reacted to that. You know, these were the people who persecuted them and looked down on them and who thought they were going to be in heaven because they were the righteous people. We need to remember that, by the way. When we get to feeling like we're the righteous people, we might want to remember that passage. You heard that it has been said of them of old time, don't kill. Whoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. But here's what I'm saying to you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Reka, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So I don't know all of the cultural stuff here, but obviously this was very common. And it was kind of like you don't call somebody a cow in France, even though that seems ridiculous to us. I mean, you're, you can't even imagine how offensive that is. I can't use the word that that would be representative of in our language. Couldn't use it here. So I don't know what it meant, but the, the idea is clear that it was enough to make you be a fool and in danger of hellfire. So he says, when you're bringing your gift to the altar and you remember that your brother has something against thee, then just leave the gift before the altar and go away and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer thy gift. What about being reconciled to our brothers and sisters? Remember one time where I was speaking, um, what I suggested was, if there is a problem between two of you in this congregation, the best thing you can do is to get together and work it out. If you work it out, you're going to make each of you better, which is going to make the congregation better, which is going to defeat Satan better. That was my thinking. So he says, you know, just agree with your adversary quickly whilst you are there in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou canst be cast into prison. That's sort of another way of saying a soft answer turns away wrath. You go and you say, you know, we have a problem and I really would like to solve it. I mean, how many preachers leave a congregation without having bitterness for having been asked to leave? One that I know of, for sure, who went to every member of the congregation when they said they wanted to get a new preacher talked to every single person in the congregation about whether there was any problem personally that they had with him. So when he left, it was all clear, no damage was done, no shooting back over the shoulder kind of thing as he rode away. And then he comes around, uh, thou hast no means, uh, verily I say, thou hast no means to come out thence until thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. So he says it can backfire on you if you're not willing to give so I guess it's sort of like treat other people the way you would like to. Do you think it's similar to that? Seems like that might be similar to the golden rule. He says, uh, you've heard by, it said by them of old time. Now, just one little comment on this. You have heard that if, if God's original plan is exactly what Jesus is saying here. <laughs> There's no difference. It's just that the Jews twisted it around in order to find a rationalization for doing a lot of what they do. You know, but Jesus says, you may have heard this, but I'm telling you what, it, what was intended. Sorry you missed it, but I'm going to tell you point blank what it meant. He says, I say to you that if you look on a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. And if your right eye offend thee, pluck it out, cast it from thee, because it's more profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. So if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee 
that one of thy members should perish, not that the whole body be cast into hell. It hath been said, whosoever shall put away his wife. Well, that's interesting. Started with the divorce thing, and it ends with the divorce thing. So I have to assume that all that stuff about get rid of parts of your body if it's a problem was part of that, that statement. You can go back and study that on your own. Whosoever shall put away his wife, verse 32, except for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. Whoever marries her that is divorced commits adultery. And again, you've heard that it hath been said by them of old time that you should not forswear thyself and you shouldn't perform unto the Lord oaths. And I say, don't swear at all, neither by heaven nor by God's throne, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst make one hair black or white, let your communication be, yep, nope, want to make a promise, can you help me with this, yep, don't be afraid to say no if you don't think you can do it right then, but what many of us are afraid will happen is that we'll lose the, lose the friend if we say no. And so we have this fear of what other people think. It's that simple. It's a fear thing again. Come back to the fear factor. And, you know, if you're not going to go and actually keep the promise, don't make it. Because whether you think it's important or not, I'm pretty sure that God is aware now, I don't understand how God can know every thought in my mind, day or night, anything. For, what, it's 8 billion people on the face of the earth right now, and that's more than have ever lived on the earth, as far as we can tell. So, how can God do that? I mean, it would take a, a magnificent, super, super, super duper, super squared computer to do that. Well, that's because computers can't do that, but God can, because God is in you. You may not accept him, but he is in you. He's there ready to help you, even as the great physician, if you will come to him and do the things he asks you to do as good works. You're going to have to change. Change is possible. We are not genetically programmed to be evil. We are not genetically programmed to be good. But we can learn to be better and better and better, just like a serial killer can learn to be more evil and more evil and more evil. Lots of examples of that, by the way. So he says, just say yes or no. For whatever is more than this comes of evil. Now you've heard that it's been said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I say unto you, just don't resist evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. If any man sue you at the law, take away thy coat. Let him have thy cloak also. <laughs> I just lost a court case to him and I'm going to give him my car as well. I don't know about that. He's asking huge things that most people would react negatively to for a reason. That's the attitude that you must have. If I had to give up my arm to keep me from sinning, I'd be willing to do it. If I had to pluck out an eye, I'd be willing to do it. You know, if, if somebody sued me, I would have to be willing to even give them more than they got. Hard to do. So he says, if any man, oh, if whosoever, verse 41, shall compel thee to go a mile, go two miles. Remember the soldiers, I don't have to tell you much about this, but the Roman soldiers could uh, commandeer them and uh, make them carry their packs for a mile. I'd like to think that a, a person who is going to be a child of God would look at that as an opportunity to talk to a Roman soldier about Christ. And he got so excited he just went two miles and then maybe he went four because it was a good conversation. He felt like this person was hearing what he was saying. There were a lot of Roman soldiers who came to Christ. Give to him that asked thee. This is one we hate to hear. Can I cut that out of my Bible? Oh, I can't cut it out of my iPad. Can you cut that out of your page? <laughs> Give to him that asks thee, and from him that would borrow from thee, don't turn away. 
Ooh, that's <laughs> really hard. I believe that Christians are the richest people on the face of the earth because one of my brethren has something I need if I'm in need. I've said it before. I'm sure I said it in the meeting uh, when I was with you. But uh, if I needed to go to Columbia, Missouri because something happened to my knee, I'm sure I could call around and I could find somebody who owned a plane who would fly me there. It's just that simple. I mean, is there anything that you own that you would not lend to somebody who is in need? Hard to get there. Most of us are not there yet. Hard to get there. I am not giving up my Gibson guitar. I don't consider needing to go do a gig worth me giving them an expensive guitar. I mean, you know, we can rationalize all we want. Okay? Anyway, just... Just give it to him is what he says. Verse 43, there's not much left here. You've heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. That's what the Jews had learned. Okay, that's why they were misguided. Look at people as being misguided, not inherently evil. Look at them as people who are capable of actually accepting the gospel and becoming servants of Christ instead of servants of Satan. Look through the outside. Don't worry about whether they have piercings, whether they have tattoos, whether their hair is purple, how it is combed or not combed or shaved up here or whatever. Don't worry about that stuff. A lot of times that's just their insecurity showing. And you've got to understand that that means they may be more susceptible to understanding that there's a God who cares about them. If you don't show that you care about them, how are they going to know that the God you worship cares about them? Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. This is not a feeling thing. This is not a Philadelphia kind of thing. This is something you're doing against all of what the world has taught you to do emotionally. Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Why? Because if they lose their souls in hell, what that you could do to them, what could you do to them that would be worse than that? You just need to look at the fact that if they're going to lose their soul, you don't want them to. That's got to be the underlying thought there. So he says... Uh, I say unto you, love your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Why? So that you may be the children of... Wait a minute. You mean I can't be a child of the Father in heaven if I don't do that? Go back and read verses 44 and 45 on your own when you get home. Game can wait a little longer. Maybe not. <laughs> anyway that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, because he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So we have to give good gifts to those who are evil and those who are good. We have to give unexpected acts of kindness to people, no matter who they are. If you love them which love you, what's your reward? Even the publicans do the same. We've had that covered. If you salute your brethren only, hello, they're right here, by the way. They're all at church. If you love your brethren only, don't the publicans do the same? Be ye therefore complete. The word perfect really means complete here. Be complete, even as your Father which is in heaven is complete. So what's the pattern? Well, we sing that song, Oh, to be like thee. The one I wanted to read the words to is to make you think about O oh, Master, let me walk with thee. And see if this is not what we're talking about. If you want to change our reaction to what's coming in from the outside that we face in the world, we need to make sure we get our own act together so that we are all of one mind. We love one another. We are there to support one another no matter who runs into what out there. Because that church is not shining your light. Shining your light is going back out into the, into the world on an individual basis. I couldn't even count 
if I knew them, I probably could not count the number of good deeds done by some of the Christians I know. Not what the church did, not what you write down, get your money, who, somebody supporting you, how many people were baptized, how many people repented, how many new people. That is not the work of the church. That's the work you have to do to get the money from that group. But that is not the work of God. Listen to this. O oh, Master, let me walk with thee in lowly paths of service, free. Tell me thy secret. Help me bear the strain of toil and the fret of care. Help me the slow of heart to move by some clear winning word of love and teach me the wayward feet to stay and guide them in the Godward way. Teach me thy patience. Still with thee in closer, dearer company in work that keeps faith sweet and strong, in trust that triumphs over wrong, in hope that sends a shining ray far down the future's broadening way, in peace that only thou canst give, with thee, O Master, let me live. Now I'm going to finish, if you'll go over to Second Peter, the first chapter, with just a few verses right here. And I appreciate your attention this, this afternoon. 2 Peter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Not through our preaching, not because I baptized you, but you have actually obtained this faith through God's righteousness. No credit to the one who teaches. There's, it doesn't matter. It's hard for preachers to get to the point where it doesn't matter what people in the congregation think about them. They just keep teaching the Word. It's not my idea. This is what the Bible says. We need to learn to say that. Not This is what I think. This is what I think. It's just, this is what the Scriptures say. And that's what I believe. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. That's another whole sermon, by the way. According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life. All things which pertain unto, not anything in life that there's not an answer for. And godliness tells you how to answer. That's part of the answer. Through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. You've got to know the scriptures. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. They are they which testify of me. And on the basis of that, it says, verse 4, Whereby are given to us exceedingly great precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We have a natural, we have a human nature, there's a divine nature. The human nature can still be in the church, right? That's what we've got to work to get out so that when we go out into the world individually and we are faced with evil, that we take the divine nature and the way we deal with people with us. That'll change it. I guarantee it. If you go out this afternoon and you smile at people, you will see a difference in their day. You will see a difference in their eyes and in their face. And if you will do two things for someone that you absolutely do not have time to do and that you absolutely would not have to do, that'll be a great start. So he says, <clears throat> whereby are given unto us exceedingly great precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Now this is the passage that I want you to close with. The idea that we can change. Don't ever think you cannot change and become better. Add to your, add to your faith virtue. Excuse me, I messed up there. Verse 5, besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. 
add to virtue, knowledge, add to knowledge, temperance. Not too hot, not too cold, clear thinking, circumspect reasoning, to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness. To godliness, add brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. So there's phileo, that's brotherly love, and there is agape or agape. Become like Christ, he gave his life that others could live. He gave his, he took the sin of the world on him that you and I could start fresh. Just start all over again and know that we have him there to help us the rest of the way. If these things be in you and they abound, they make you that you shall be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The pattern then comes from this. People ask for what, you know, what do you think the church ought to do? That's it. Clean up the church, make everybody better, get them all growing. It's really what elders are supposed to be doing, watching the flock. Get everybody growing, get everybody encouraged, get everybody to repent to God of the sins that are in their life so that we go out into the world pure. You know, confide in somebody that you know really well. The pattern is to look in our own hearts. You have to overcome the fear. You have to overcome pride. Those are the two biggies that are, that are driving everything in the church that's bad. Once we recognize that the tie that binds our hearts in love is something blessed, something that can make us happy, that it is the goal of every Christian to love one another, because in truth, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins, every individual knowing that will allow the salt to go out and be a preserving influence in the world. Thank you all.